So we're in Romans chapter four, and it's occurred to me that like, I'm preaching this stuff that Paul wrote a letter to that they probably sat down and read over a couple of days, you know, and we're taking little bits of it over, over weeks. And, um, but what's interesting is uh, because of the way churches preach and because of the way that I've chosen to preach this book, you guys were getting hammered for weeks and weeks and weeks with the depravity of man, with our sin, with the destruction of culture and society that happens slowly but surely through man's rejection of God. And we heard that week after week after month after month. And what's really great is that now we're getting to hear week after week after month after month of God's solution. And I do think that that's the way that God intended it to flow um, if you're going to preach like this. So we're, we're in this place in Romans where um, I, the danger though is, I think, that, that you're going to be like I could be, which is, why do I need to hear this again? Like, why do I need to keep going over this? And, and I would just want to say what, what Holly just said I- implicitly, that God's word is active, that God's word is sharper than a, a two-edged sword, that God's word is what pierces between soul and marrow, and that we need God's word as much as we need food and water. And so this is God's word I am trying to unpack to you. And, and as I prepared this week, I, I sensed that, like, this is God's word, you know, because I'm dealing with, we're going over these things again. And, and I just, what, what comes back to me is, as I prepare, is this is God's word. We need God's word. It has a work to do in our hearts. And we can have confidence that he wants it to do a work. Now, who I am, how I'm wired, I have great hope that God's word um, will do that work in you. Because I'm, I'm being affected by this week after week. So, um, I just want to pray momentarily that God would do that with you. That even though we're coming over these principles again and again and again, God's word would do the work it needs to do in your hearts, okay? So you just pray with me for a second. Lord, this is your word. These are your words. You create through your word. You save through your word. You sustain and build up through your word. You feed and nourish through your word. So as Holly prayed, I want to echo and amen that, Lord. Let, let, let nothing drop to the floor from your word that you want to pierce our hearts and to serve us and to help us today. Lord, have our ears and eyes open and our hearts nourished by your word. God, I need this so much. I know. So please do what only your Holy Spirit can do. Take your word and bury it deep in the soil of our hearts. And through your nourishment, make it bear fruit, Lord, in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In his study of the book of Romans, this famous old pastor, if you study these books, he's famous to a lot of pastors. His name is James Boyce. He tells the story of another pastor that he knows who is speaking to a man who was not a Christian, but was on the very edge of, of conversion to Christ. But this man could just not seem to resolve his commitment and his belief and his, his questions. There was much about God and the gospel and Jesus that seemed to draw him and was drawing him, but he was having a tremendous amount of difficulty overcoming final inner tensions about it all. And the way that Boyce tells it, this man almost exasperated in his search and in his conversation with this other pastor, 
He's almost panting at closure. And he, he finally like culminates his heart in this question to this Christian pastor. What is it that God wants? What is it that he wants for me? And he was asking at the core of all this, at the core of his own struggle with his maker, at the core of God's design and dealings with man and man and women's dealings with God, what is it that God is after for me? There are probably a lot of ways we could answer this question, but the pastor boiled it down to something in that moment, very simple, and the best way I could put it is, is primal. You know, just at the very gut bottom of all. And the pastor said to him, God wants to be believed. God wants to be believed. I didn't, I didn't plan this, but I think it's so appropriate that when Michael came up this morning, he preached to us from Matthew in the story of these blind men groping after Jesus. And Jesus says, do you believe? Do you believe I can do this? God wants to be believed. He wants to be trusted. God is trustworthy and he wants to be trusted. Trusted. As a father, I can relate to this. I find this answer compelling. As a mom or a dad, you long to be reliable to your kids. You want to be there for them. You want to be reliable and trustworthy. But you want more than that. You want them to enjoy that. You want them to feel your trustworthiness. You know in your gut that's the currency of relationship. Rules and threats and fear, it's not going to work. Money and carrots and all the toys and all the gifts and all the phones, that's not what you want to be the currency of your relationship. At the core, what you want is trust. You want them to trust you. And that's what God wants. But on a much bigger scale than moms and dads and their kids, on a much more glorious and infinite scale, as the one who makes all things, as the one who holds all things together, as the one who, who in this very moment keeps your soul in your body. Did you ever ask that question? Who in the world is keeping my conscious immaterial being inside this body <laughs> that I see out of? Like, we don't have the first clue about how this universe works. God's doing it all. He's holding it all together. He's, he's the one whom you must turn to your very next breath. He's the one to whom you have to turn when you breathe your last breath and your soul leaves your body and goes into whatever is next. You got nothing else to trust. Not your job, your good looks, your, which won't be there for most of us anymore. You know, you just, we got nothing else to trust. We need to know that God is trustworthy but more than that, God wants us to know that he's trustworthy and he wants to be trusted. This is what he wants from us. He wants to be believed. He wants to be taken at his word. And nowhere is this truth about God more true than in this doctrine we've been studying, this doctrine of what's called justification. As we jump into Romans today, we're continuing to follow the Apostle Paul's ongoing argument about justification. This crucial question of how we are rescued from condemnation for our sin and how we are put right with God and instead of condemned, declared righteous in his sight. And we'll see that not only does God not, not only does he want to be believed and taken at his word in this area, 
But we're going to see again, but more deeply, hopefully by God's grace, that it is believing God's promise to justify us. That is the very way for us to receive that promise. There, There are no, in other words, there's no religious rituals that will earn you his justification. There are no religious rituals that will earn his approval and justification. There's no law keeping that we can perform that will ensure his forgiveness and his reward of justification. There's no being good enough that will compel his hand to declare sinners righteous. And we need that declaration. This crucial issue of justification is at the heart of salvation. Remember what we said justification is. It's it's this shorthand for just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always obeyed. We need our record cleared by Christ because God is a very lawful God. He's a very just God and he will punish sin and we are sinners. And so we need justification. We need someone to say, you're no longer in my sight liable to punishment and condemnation and estrangement for sin. No, now you're clean. Now you are justified in my sight. We need that. And this is the way we get justified according to God. We trust him to do it. We believe him to do it for us. There's no other way. Paul's been making this case for three chapters that we're in desperate spiritual trouble with God as a human race because we have, as a human race, rejected him. And we have treated one another unlovingly and wickedly as a human race. And now he's proclaiming God's solution to our trouble. It's himself. In the person of God the Son, he receives the just punishment for our sin. And by that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, God is able to pronounce us justified in his sight. Your record went on to Jesus. God punished Jesus for your record. And now your record before God is clear. And you can justly be called blameless because Jesus took your blame. You can justly be called sinless in God's sight because Jesus took your sin. This is justification. God declares you righteous in his sight. And then you are worthy in a sense to receive everything good that God wants to pour into your life for ages and infinity to come. And Paul wants the readers to get this, to believe this, to rejoice in this. He wants people to be very happy about this, deeply, soul deep happy about this. He wants this to be the grounding of their whole lives. God wants his children to know they are accepted in him, to have that joy. And so Paul is taking one of the most revered children of God in all of human history, Abraham, and he's walking his readers through Abraham's life to show that this is how God justifies people. He does it through people who trust him, who believe him, who believe his promise. Not those who seek to justify themselves through their law keeping. Not those who seek to perform enough for God so that he will accept them. See, Paul is trying to convince people like us who know the law of God, who know something about right and wrong, who agree with the reality that the universe is a moral universe 
and that sin must be punished and that righteousness is to be commended and rewarded. And he's trying to get them to give up in any hope that they will be able to justify themselves by their obedience to God's laws. He's trying to get them to give up on any hope that they can justify themselves by their obedience to God's laws and to instead put all their hope in God's promise to justify anyone who will believe in God to do that. And he's going to bring three arguments to try to hammer this in as we get to this section in Romans. Three arguments. And I'm going to try to bring you those three arguments. Paul is trying to show this is how God justifies. This is how he declares you righteous. Not by your obedience. Not by your law keeping. Get your hope off of that and put it in to what God has done and who God is. His first argument is this, the timing of Abraham's justification. In other words, when did Abraham become declared righteous in God's sight? When was Abraham forgiven of all of his sins, declared blameless because of God's justification? When did this happen? So this is starting up in verse nine of chapter four. Is this blessedness, and the blessedness, if you were here last week, you might know, is the blessedness of being forgiven and justified. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We'll get to that word in a second. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. That is, we've been saying all along that when Abraham believed God's promises, he was declared righteous by God through faith not by what he did. So verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not before. I'm sorry, it was not after he was circumcised, but before. This is a very technical, weird argument for many of us, but just try to follow. It's a very logical argument when we understand it. Verse 11, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. We'll stop right there. Circumcision is not easy for us to relate to. If you don't know what it means, go home and call and ask your mom or dad today. I mean, all of you. Um, If they're still around, my parents are with the Lord, so I have to probably like talk to other mature adults if I want to know. Mike, I could ask you. But um, Circumcision is a religious ritual that involves the cutting off of skin. And I won't go into any more details. It is very strange to our ears, but, <laughs> but it is a religious ritual that marked the Jewish people. And it still happens. People still do it, but it doesn't usually have its religious connotations. My point is it's a religious ritual. Um, thinking it's, <laughs> think of something like getting your ears pierced or your, I don't know. But anyway, it... it But to many of Paul's readers, this religious ritual of circumcision, it was what defined you as acceptable to God or not, believe it or not. It was was what made you righteous and right with God, whether you were in God's kingdom or not, was whether you were circumcised, whether you went through this God-commanded ritual. And it wasn't just something to laugh at. This was a serious thing in God's commandments. You, You better get all your firstborns and all your men circumcised. You want to be in God's kingdom. This was what they had been taught. But here's the problem with thinking, Paul says, that we're justified by obeying this sacred religious ritual. Some 20 years before Abraham was ever circumcised, in Genesis 15, 6, God promises to bless Abraham. He promises to give Abraham a home, 
to bless all the whole world through Abraham, he promises, in fact, to give Abraham himself, to be God, to be Abraham's very shield. Basically, in that moment, God gives himself to Abraham and everything else that comes with God forever. God hears these promises. I'm sorry, Abraham hears these promises from God and he believes him. That's what Abraham does. God makes promises. Abraham believes the promises and God credits righteousness to him. God declares in that moment, you are righteous in my sight. In other words, in that moment that Abraham believed God, God forgave all of his sins past, present, and future, and declared Abraham righteous in his sight forever. This all came to Abraham by believing God's promise. And that was 20 years before he was ever circumcised. 20 years and some many centuries before the Jewish people, Abraham's descendants, had ever received the laws of God. So Paul's saying, hey, if, if he was made right by obeying God's laws, like circumcision or any of the laws that we think of the 10 commandments, Abraham didn't even have those laws. And yet God declared him right in his sight. And we might ask, well then what was the whole point of this religious ritual? And God says, and this is so powerful for a, a principle for us as Christians. He says this, circumcision is a sign. It's a seal of the righteousness that he by faith had while he was still uncircumcised. That's verse 11. Obeying God's holy commandments did not save Abraham. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham had already been justified by believing God's promise 20 years earlier. In bigger principle, what the gospel says is that your obedience does not save you today. Your obedience is a confirmation that God has saved you and changed you. But, but let's take it more practically. Water baptism. What do we think of water baptism? Whatever we think of water baptism and it's commanded, we must know that it does not save us. We take the Lord's Supper once a month. It's beautiful. It's important. It's commanded. We must know it doesn't save us. Committing to a church family, I believe that's very biblical and it's commanded. It's commanded. All these things are meant to nourish our faith, but they don't save us. They don't save us any more than me putting on this ring today, if I had taken it off and I didn't, suddenly makes me married. Or by hanging my high school diploma on my wall in my study, suddenly makes me a graduate. Wedding rings are a sign. They proclaim what's already true. Jen is my wife. If I take the ring off, Jen is my wife. If I put the ring on, Jen is my wife. Diplomas are a sign. I passed four years of high school classes. If I throw it in the trash, I still pass four years of high school classes and I'm a high school graduate. If I blow it up 10 by 10 and I put it above my doorway in my house, I still pass them. I get laughed at, but I still pass all those classes. Water baptism is a sign that we are already righteous in God's sight through believing in what Jesus did for us, not through keeping God's laws. Communion is a sign that we are already righteous in God's sight by believing what Jesus did for us, not through keeping God's laws. So Paul says Abraham's observance of this commanded religious ritual was a sign of confirmation. And Paul says, this is how people are made right with God. Not by their circumcision, their Lord's Supper, their water baptism, but by trusting God's promises. In that sense, Paul says, when we do those, when we, when we do exhibit this faith, we show ourselves to be part of God's family. 
and Abraham's descendant. Now, this, this passage right here, starting halfway through verse 11, um, there, there, we could go into all kinds of messages about this. I, I don't know. I, I am not sure how much time we should spend in this because it's dealing with questions that we don't have as a church. Um, but basically what Paul's saying is verses 11 and 12 is that whether you are a Jew who knows God's laws <clears throat> or a Gentile who never was instructed in God's laws, the crucial matter in justification is believing God's promise. Not being a Jew, not being a Gentile, but believing in God's promise. And when we do that, we're part of God's family, whom Abraham is the father from an earthly sense of all of God's people. Now, Paul's going to show another reason why justification comes by God's promises. This is more sobering, more visceral, <clears throat> but I love this argument. This is a lifesaver <clears throat> for me, and I hope it blesses you too. Number two, the terrible consequence of the law. This is another reason why justification comes through God's promises. And it's number two, the terrible consequence of the law. Follow me here. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, if they inherit what God has promised by their law keeping, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, Paul is being very direct here. This is like when you guys are, are <laughs> as if you've done this, but I, I've done this, you know, you're walking on some path, you're on the Sino Canal or something, and you, you come across this gated, th this happens to me on uh, the Sino Canal a few miles from our house. You come upon this, this fenced-in, gated, like, power plant, and there's these signs that say, do not trespass. Do not trespass everywhere. And in order to make the signs really effective, sometimes they'll like put like an electrocuted face on there or something. You've ever seen that? Like an electrocuted skeleton? He's just like, okay, okay, I got it. Message understood. This is kind of what Paul is doing here in this verse as he talks about the terrible consequence of the law. He's like, hey, hey don't, go, don't go near this. Don't open this. Don't open this. The terrible consequences of the law. God makes this promise that Abraham is going to be heir of the world. Now, without getting too hyper-technical, this is God's way of summar this is Paul's way of summarizing all that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants, that he would inherit the world, that what God had made was for him to be was to be given to Abraham, was, was to be enjoyed by Abraham, was to be inherited by Abraham, was to belong to him, that God's creation it almost takes us back to the garden, was to be inherited. It wasn't something that Abraham was to lose. It wasn't something that Abraham wasn't to, be, to, to enjoy. God was giving Abraham all things. And if, if we got more technical about these promises, I, I hopefully could show you that, this is, that Abraham being an heir is, a, is parallel to the promise of the gospel, to basically be given life forever. But God makes this promise to Abraham. And Abraham, Paul says, 
He says in verse 11, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received this promise, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, God gave Abraham a promise and God himself qualified Abraham to receive that promise. It wasn't as if God gave Abraham a promise and then made it made Abraham unworthy to receive that promise in God's sight. I think what, what Paul's trying to say here is that God operates justly. God operates justly. So if, if I was to try to walk this in, in some sort of A, B, C, D, like stage step process, this is, this is kind of what I came up with of this, this argument here. Let's go to the next slide. This is what I think God is kind of pointing at, or Paul's tr- trying to explain. A, this is how grace operates. A holy and just God makes a promise to a sinner who does not deserve what is promised, okay? God makes this great promise to Abraham or to you and me and says, I will be good to you for eternity. Nothing will stop me. I will be good to you forever and ever and ever and ever. But you're a sinner. You don't deserve that promise. You actually deserve punishment for your sin. If, if God was to really look at your life and he does and sees all that you do, you, you don't qualify for that promise. But God's a holy and just God, so he's got a problem, right? So God makes this, who is just, makes this promise to a sinner who does not deserve what is promised. B, the undeserving sinner, though, believes God's promise. So what happens next? C, next slide. And in response to that belief, this holy and just God justifies the sinner. In other words, God forgives them totally and therefore declares them fully righteous in his sight of all their sin. Then D, now that sinner is counted as righteous in God's sight and he or she can now justly receive all the goodness of God that he or she does not inherently deserve. That's not super like romantic or catchy or easy to say, but I think that this is what Paul's argument is he's trying to make. If we go back to verse 11, it was not through the law, that is Abraham's keeping of the law, that he and his offspring Receive the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. It wasn't. It was through, he didn't receive it through his law keeping. He received it by being justified by faith. Not by his law keeping. And we need God to operate this way. We need God to to deal with us this way. It's the only way that we can survive. And look at verse 14. Here's why. For if those who depend on the law, meaning their obedience to God's law, are are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. Here's that sign in front of that power plant, that gated area you're not supposed to go in. The law brings wrath. This statement is really meant to warn us to stay away from hoping in our obedience as our justification before God. If we want our justification before God, if we want, if we could put it this way, our right to receive good things from God, good things like eternal life, his friendship, his eternal fatherhood, all that he has made that he wants us to enjoy, to be treated with grace and kindness and forgiveness and mercy and love all over and over again. If we want him to do all that, 
And we want the basis of why he should do all that to be our obedience to his laws. We are doomed. That's what Paul is saying. You guys understand that? Everybody understand that? This is really important. This is, you're standing outside the electrical power plant and there's a sign that says, do not enter here. You will get electrocuted. So I want everybody to get this electrocution sign that's supposed to warn us. I'm a clumsy preacher sometimes and I, 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 this is really important. And it's supposed to actually, ironically, not just warn us, but shoot us across the sky into unending joy and delight. See, none of us, none of us obey God's laws like we should. So if our law keeping is our basis for eternal life or any promise of God, like the promise to justify us and give us eternal life, those promises become worthless and our faith in those promises becomes pointless because they're all conditioned upon our obedience and we will never make it that way. This doesn't mean that we don't try to obey the Lord. Paul is going to try to reset our motivations in a couple of chapters for why we should obey. But if we're trying to obey the Lord so that we make it into heaven, so that he sees us as finally good enough to improve, it's not going to work. It's going to be slavery for us. And so what you know, we'll have to get to other messages to talk about. Paul is not saying don't try to obey the Lord. What he is trying to say is we should never trust our obedience to be the reason why we're justified, accepted by God, have a relationship with God today, tomorrow, next year, ever for eternal life, ever. We don't trust our obedience for our safety with God. We don't trust our obedience for our relationship with God. We trust in God's mercy in Christ Jesus and what he's done. Good days, bad days, great quiet time, no quiet time. We can't move our trust from God to ourselves. Charles Spurgeon said it this way in his great habit of good, of making good words. Spurgeon, good at words. Um, <clears throat> He said it this way, I desire to press forward for direction to my master in all things. And this is his old English way of saying, I want to follow Jesus in everything. I really do. I'm, I, I want to do that. I want to be able to do that. But as to trusting my own obedience and righteousness, I should be worse than a fool and 10 times worse than a madman. There is no surviving with God by hoping in our obedience before him. Ultimately, if we try to live by the law consciously, if we say to him consciously, we'll earn it, Lord. We'll make it by our goodness and our obedience. We will only reap pride or for, for many of us, people like me, will reap terrible anxiety and insecurity in this life. And we will reap, if that's where we're gonna stand before him and we're really gonna hold on to that, we're gonna reap just wrath in the next. He will repay no, we must have something that can preserve us despite our failure before God. Failures that continue along with successes and mixed bag that we are. And this is exactly why God deals with us according to his promise that we receive by faith instead of a promise conditioned on our obeying him. Does this make sense? Are you guys getting this? I'll close my eyes and if you're not getting it, just make some kind of 
dog bark noise or cat meow or something. <laughs> They'll probably be like, oh, I can tell that's Luke doing a dog. Now we need a few minutes to regroup here. Final point, three. Justification by grace is a promise realized by faith alone. Justification by grace alone. Justification is by grace alone and realized by faith alone in God's promise. That's a mouthful. I couldn't be more elegant with my time and inner resources, but this is it. Justification is by grace alone. Righteousness being declared righteous, forgiven, blameless in God's sight. Your criminal record thrown into the trash and burned up forever of your whole life. Criminal record, like not just the criminal record until today, but remember God's outside of time. He sees all things. When he justifies you, he takes your whole criminal record. The stuff you did when you were 10 and the stuff you'll do at 100 if you live that long. And he burns it up in the trash and he says, blameless, justified in my courtroom. Everything went on my son. And I declare you righteous. Hallelujah, amen. That is by grace alone. In other words, it's a gift and it's realized by faith alone in God's promise. It's my last point. Paul says in verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. That's that word for gift, free gift. When you see grace, think free gift. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that that may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. Paul's point is that if you believe like Abraham, you're one of Abraham's kids. It's not just about being ethnically related by DNA. It's the heart of faith that connects you to Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. I believe we'll look at some of that at the end next week. But here's the point I want us to see today. This is one of the most important statements in the world in being able to speak the gospel to your own heart. Right here in verse 16. The promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. This is so beautiful and so life-freeing. And so life-changing, if we could really get this and grasp this and hold on to this. The promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. The promise of God to justify us is not conditioned on obedience or else it cannot come by God's grace. There has to be some other mechanism, some other way for us to receive justification that still honors God and yet does not demand that we qualify ourselves to deserve it. And the way that God has made that is in keeping with grace, with the giving of a free gift, is simply faith. We believe God's promise. We believe that a holy and just God will be good to us who do not deserve it. In other words, we go back to this scandalous verse in Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. That was in last week's message, if you didn't make that one. This is the way that God can guarantee his gift of justification getting to you. A sinner who doesn't qualify it. He, he takes the earning out of your hands. 
He takes the deserving of it out of your hands. He takes the working for it out of your hands. And he places all that on his son, on your behalf. He places all that working for it, earning, deserving. He puts it on his son, on your behalf. This is how our our holy and beautiful and infinitely good God saves people who break his laws and who break his heart. He pays the price. He takes the punishment. He deals with our lack of earning it. He deals with our lack of deserving it. He satisfies the law of love him and love our neighbor as ourselves that we never could satisfy. He offers himself to God to satisfy God's justice for us on our behalf. And he says, now it's free to you. It wasn't free to my son, but it's free to you. Will you believe? Will you believe? Will you believe that you need this? And will you believe that I'm willing to give it to you? Because he offers himself freely to anyone who will accept this free gift of justification so that they can receive eternal life. Here are God's promises to you afresh this morning. Here's a few from John 4. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Very, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned but has crossed over from death to life. On the last day of the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Whoever believes will not perish. Whoever believes will not be condemned. Whoever believes will receive the spirit. Whoever believes, not whoever keeps the laws of God as important and good as they are. It's whoever believes. Not who obeys enough and deserves it enough and earns it enough. This is how Abraham was saved. This is how we are saved. We don't look to ourselves to save us. We don't justify ourselves before God. We look to his promise. We look to the righteousness purchased for us by Christ's blood and we trust him to be true to that promise. And we have to do that the first time that we come to Christ and we have to do that every single day of our lives. I don't think I'm the only one, but I know for myself, I am just addicted to putting my hope in whether I measure up enough all the time. Always, all the time, my brain just keeps resetting back to my obedience and my performance. I don't simply mean that as as a way to love the Lord who has saved me. I mean that as a way to make sure I'm okay. I said that a few weeks ago, what makes you okay? And I think for many of us, we, we, we come back to this. Did I do enough? Did I do enough to be ultimately justified okay with God? 
I think that changes how we view God. It changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we judge one another when we are not fixing our eyes on this truth that God accepts us in Christ based on the promise, not on our ability to measure up to his laws. Whether our faith is great or whether our faith is a mustard seed, what matters is what Christ has done and God's promise to be faithful to us based on what Christ has done. With even the smallest mustard seed of faith, even saying like that father in Mark 8, I believe, help my unbelief. May God help us turn our hearts again and again each day to believing the promise of God that we are counted righteous in Christ. We are justified for eternal life with God as our beloved father. That there is no condemnation left for us, that Christ took that, and that what is left for us is to seek him, to love him, but not out of slavery so that he might accept us, but because he has. That what's left as us is, is his help to do that. His promise to support us and not leave us and to keep us going, keep us following. Look him, we look to him to trust. We look to him in trust to do that for us. I thought of, you know, I've, I, as I've preached these messages, I've, I've brought various application points about what all this means. And each time I come up to it, I think I can run through these same ones about anxiety and about a sense of acceptance and assurance. And I think because I did that last week, I would just say, if you didn't listen to that message, go back and listen to it. I would appeal to you too. And you can go over those categories. As I was finishing up this message, I just had one specific application for us today. And it's in keeping with Michael and what he led us in this morning in, in prayer. It's about just prayer, like our approaching God. And I, I just wanted to ask you, when you approach God for help about something, something for a loved one, something you're struggling with, a sin battle, a fear battle, something you want for a brother or sister, what do you look to when you approach God? Do you just look to like, well, God's just nice. He'll be nice to me. Do you look to, how am I doing? Like, how did I do today with my obedience to God? How did I do today with my quiet time, my devotional life, my diligence at work? I, I, I'm not saying those things aren't important, but I think those are conversations to have with God in prayer that you can have with him because his door is open to you through Jesus. Like I, I don't think the conversation is, I'm not talking to you today because you didn't have your quiet time, or I, I'm not talking to you today because you're not being honest about your tax return, or I'm not talking to you today because you're lazy right now in your life. I think those are all conversations that God might want to put first and foremost in your prayer time, right? Like if you really are cheating on your taxes, you really are living the season of laziness, if you really are 
being unkind to your wife, those are going to be front row conversations he's going to want to have with you. But where are you going to get help for those things? Like, where are you going to go? Like, when is it ever about cleaning yourself up and then you can come to God? This whole message tells us that that's not the way it works. So what, what I want to say is that, in, in closing, is that I want to ask you and ask myself, let's move our, like, let's move our confidence when we approach God in prayer each day away from whether we've gotten it right or not in the last 24 hours or 48 hours or however long it's been since we last talked to him. Let's move our confidence in his hearing us and talking to us and helping us away from our performance and let's put it on Jesus. Let's put it on Jesus and say, God, I need your help. I need your help with these things. And if there's something that I'm I'm not seeing that you want to talk to me about, I need your help with that. You know? A classic picture is that 1 Timothy 3. It says, husbands, honor your wives. 1 Peter 3, so your prayers might not be hindered. It's a little summary of it, but if we're husbands who are treating our wives really poorly, God's going to let our lives be affected by that and disciplined by that. But if we're husbands who are treating our wives really poorly, we need his help. We want to get on our knees and plead his mercy for that. And I think God would say, yeah, that's the right move. Don't say you're, you can't come to me for help because you haven't fixed this yet. I think he'd say, this is what we need to deal with. This is what we need to talk to. But you need me. You need to come into my presence and talk to me. So let's believe what God says when he says, my son has paid the price. The door is open to us. Look to what he's done to come to me in faith, believing that I will help you with what you're struggling with.